Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. We have a son named Henry as well. Oh. Also enjoys the Hot Pocket now and then. I tried to make them. I tried to make them because I was like, okay, well, if you're going to like a Hot Pocket, it's not that far off like a calzone. So that's been feeding Italians from time immemorial. So perhaps we should just have a go at making a Hot Pocket. And Henry was like, what does the Italian word for calzone mean again? And I was like, sock. And he was like, yeah, mom, you made a sock. <laughs> it tastes like a sock. Nice. <laughs> Hello. I'm Minnie Driver. Welcome to Mini Questions Season 2. I've always loved Proust's questionnaire. It was originally a 19th century parlor game where players would ask each other 35 questions aimed at revealing the other player's true nature. It's just the scientific method, really. In asking different people the same set of questions, you can make observations about which truths appear to be universal. I love this discipline. And it made me wonder... What if these questions were just the jumping off point? What greater depths would be revealed if I asked these questions as conversation starters with thought leaders and trailblazers across all these different disciplines? So I adapted Proust's questionnaire and I wrote my own seven questions that I personally think are pertinent to a person's story. They are, when and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? What person, place, or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that's grown out of a personal disaster? And I've gathered a group of really remarkable people, ones that I am honored and humbled to have had the chance to engage with. 
You may not hear their answers to all seven of these questions. We've whittled it down to which questions felt closest to their experience or the most surprising or created the most fertile ground to connect. My guest today is the author Anthony Dore, whose book All the Light We Cannot See won the Pulitzer Prize. This, it turns out, is not surprising at all if you have ever read a single word he has written. His more recent novel, Cloud Cuckoo Land, is genuinely one of my favourite books ever. And the level of lyricism present in his writing is there when he speaks too. I wrote down so many things he said all the way through the interview, you know, as though the whole thing wasn't being recorded and I had to take notes. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm very interested, I didn't mean to start out with since my mother died, but since my mother died, I think about the things that I didn't realise until after she'd gone that went into the basic architecture, the stuff that was in passing rather than the big moments. And it was weird. It was like, it was like having the foundation of something revealed when I'd really just been looking at the building mm. the whole time, this beautiful building, because she was this amazing person. It's been like this weird posthumous gift to feel all these other things. So like now when I do something and my son rolls his eyes and like thinks that I'm super embarrassing and that we've spent five hours making a sock, I do go, no, you know what? He's going to remember this because we listened to New Order while we made this calzone and we chatted about some something. It's so interesting because that's kind of the lesson for like beginning writers want to write about the big architecture. You know, they want to write about love or what it feels to be confused. But the only way to deliver that to another person is through detail, through like these moment by moment details of life. That's how memories get built, you know, is new order and making a calzone. Exactly. And you know what? I had this teacher who I dedicated my book to my English teachers. My three teachers were so huge in my life as a whole. But Alistair, one of them, on a Monday morning, a piece of A4 paper would be posted on the notice board in my school from the age of 10 onwards. And there would be a list in his really beautiful, strange, italic handwriting. And it would be like drinking a cup of tea, tying my shoelaces, getting out of bed. And you had to write two sides of A4 describing this extraordinarily mundane thing. And he was like, this is just like exercise. He was like, this is the same as you running around the playing fields, playing hockey, basketball, whatever it is. So many years later, when I was still working my way through the anthology of what he told me to read in my life, he said it was about getting you to pay attention to not just the having to do this thing. The thing was not the thing, but to your life, to all those things, that it would trigger that whenever you noticed something. It would trigger the memory of your interest and the fact that you had that muscle built in from an early age to appreciate it and to be able to kind of develop ideas from it. Yeah. Detail is how you communicate with people. If you had said, I had this teacher, Alistair, he was meaningful to me, that would kind of bounce off me. But if you describe his handwriting and you describe this list on his door and the details of what he was asking you to do, describe tying your shoelaces, it means something to me. That's how you communicate emotion. It's ironically, it's like you're reaching for the stars, but the way to do it is like the tiny little pieces of broken glass on the ground. Mm. And that we keep retrieving memory. Like I've just moved back to the town that I'm from. I don't like how it feels because I don't feel like I can make new memories here. I'm so in the trough of what went before. And I'm fascinated by it at the same time as feeling incredibly sad. It feels palpable. I keep asking everybody, how do you create new memories in a totally familiar environment? 
That's super interesting. It makes me think about Germans in like the 70s trying to deal with like the weight of the memory of all the stuff that had happened. And you're just trying to like listen to music and be 18 years old. And I mean, there's always this impulse to renew. I mean, I think that's what's so beautiful is grass always ends up growing over the battlefields. And it's so important to remember that blood was spilled there, but at the same time, allow space for young people to move around. So our twin boys just went off to college. Oh, wow. You know, I worry so much about, you know, this world, like I keep saying, like, well, the world's warming up, Owen, like it's going to get worse. <laughs> you know, he doesn't need that. He needs to be able to go make new memories and discover the world anew and go to a party as if it was like the first time anybody ever went to a party. Do you go to any good parties? Oh, what, you're busy going? Can you believe the ice caps? Not. What about that Kappa Kappa Gamma? <laughs> <laughs> That's totally it. Yeah. And then his mom's like, ask him about COVID. <laughs> oh my God. She's like the cherry on top. That's really funny. Well, God, I'd better get on because I could really just ask you about a thousand questions that have nothing to do with these seven questions, but I will glean all the answers that I would like to ask you out of these seven questions that I'll ask you. Will you tell me where and when you were happiest? Of course. I thought about it. I'm going to choose a general when, but a specific where. I love to ski. I live in Idaho in the mountains in the United States. One of the last places middle-class families can still ski and, you know, afford it. We raised our boys skiing on this mountain called Brundage Mountain, about two hours north of here, where, you know, they just put a keg of beer in the snow and like grill hamburgers, and you could still get a season pass for about 200 bucks. Oh, my God. There's something about joy for me that's always connected to the ephemeral. And for me, it's fresh snow is like this great reminder of it when the whole world's like made new again by a big dump of fresh white snow to be there with my boys, like moving downhill. There's some joy and speed are linked in my head too, for some reason. But skiing through fresh snow, like your joints feel 20 years younger because you can just land without pain mm. and moving and hearing them like whooping. You can hear like the joy of other people and you know it's going to go away. It's going to get tracked up. It'll get too warm. The moment of fresh snow is unpredictable. You just have to be lucky enough to be there when it comes. And then to feel yourself dancing. It's really a kind of dance moving down through that. All of your troubles kind of vanish and evaporate and you're just present in the now. And you're creating, like you're dancing as you, especially if there are trees, you're dancing down through them. So you're kind of improvising and making music in your head. It's really sharing that with somebody is so special. Oh my God. For how you describe that, it is so akin to the ocean. I mean, I know that snow is visited upon us and the oceans are always there, but that feeling, that is what surfing is like for me. Everything feels young. It's only the next day when you feel your knees and my shoulders <laughs> and my back and the thing, but in that moment. That's it. And the waves aren't always predictable. I mean, you're waiting to see what wave will come and sometimes they aren't there and sometimes they're too big. And so it's very, very similar. Yeah. And you're using gravity, the forces of nature to move you through an environment. Something so deeply human, it connects us to our ancestors. Mm, you know? Yeah, it really does. It really does that moving through nature, particularly like the mountains feel particularly sort of atavistic because there's it's so much to do with survival. Like, I don't know, the part of my brain is always on a mountain or high up or on a glacier, like super, super, super more turned on than it is anywhere else, even in the ocean where I know that there are great white sharks. 
they swim right by me to go up to the seal colony and eat their breakfast. It's not switched on in the same way as it is in the mountains. It's funny. But there is always a threat of injury. There's always uh, there's something that makes you feel a little more alive. I'm not chasing like down crazy couloirs or something, but a little bit of threat of danger does help keep you kind of present. And in a mind like mine, that's always like, what do I have to do next Friday? Or why can't I solve this problem in the book I'm working on right now? To just be present is something I'm chasing. And it's always so bleeding. You know, I just want to grab on that and remember like my boys are going to get bigger. You know, they won't always ski with me. I'm going to get older. So to have those moments when you get to be with them and to try to appreciate them for what they are before they're gone. Yes. My son barely looked over. I mean, he did, but he did barely look over his shoulder when he went off on this camping trip his first week back at school. And I was like, I'd carry him around in my pocket if I could. Like, I would be in the back of his class being like, isn't ancient Rome great? Like, I'd be, do you want to sit together at lunch? What should we have for lunch? Like, I would be his worst nightmare if I possibly could. But I called his name out and I must have, there must have been something. You know how when you hear someone shout and you can tell that they're in pain, you know it's not a shriek of joy. You really know that they've trodden on a thumbtack or stubbed their toe. I must have said his name with something in it because he turned around so quickly and I sort of like Cheshire cat grinned at him and he was like, mom, it's going to be okay. Yeah. And then I asked him if I was damaging him. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we just, we have twin boys who just dropped them off at college. So it's like the same thing. God, that must have been really hard. Your whole job is to get them to live on their own. I know. And yet you're trying to make your deepest emotional connection of your life, really, over and over with them. And then you're expected to kind of say, okay. And let them go. Yeah, let them go. I know. It's way more evolved than humans actually are, which makes me feel like we used to be so evolved. Because <laughs> clearly we used to do it. We've been doing it for this long, but like it, doesn't, it hasn't gotten any easier. Like how come everything else is supposed to evolve? And there are these things that just do not. It never becomes easier or you can't intellectually qualify it. But maybe uh, we didn't evolve to send our kids 3,000 miles away to university. No. There's a lot of things that are kind of artificial demands that modern life puts on us that maybe our ancestors didn't have to deal with. I think, you know, we would be around our elders a lot more. We would be around our grown kids and the way we segment kids in schools, for example, like all the 12 year olds sit together now, but in villages, like kids of all different ages would be helping each other. The three year olds would be tended by the nine year olds and the 15 year olds are helping the nine year olds. Sometimes I wonder, you know, all this segmentation and the distance, you know, our kids got into so-called good universities, but they're far from home. And maybe that's a little artificial. I know. For people listening, Cloud Cuckoo Land is honestly one of my favorite books I ever read. And the part that I cried in the most was when Amir's leaving home, being forced to leave with his cattle. Yeah. And knowing that he will never see them again. This idea that even if one returns, it, there was something particularly unbearable about how going to, I don't know how far Constantinople was from where his woods were. Yeah, probably only 350 miles. But, you know, in those days, that's forever. The whole book really is about returning and how you can never step in the same river twice. And yet that's part of life, like letting your son go off camping. You know, he'll come back slightly changed and he'll still need you for a few more years, but you have to celebrate. 
his growing independence, even as he's pushing against those boundaries that you're building around him. Our boys need to go build new families, new tribes, and they're not rejecting us. We're not losing them as much as kind of sharing them with other people is what I keep trying to tell myself anyway. You're a little bit ahead in terms of like the college thing, but Henry goes to boarding schools. There is something of them like going off and taking what you've given them out into the world and saying, this is what we did. This was the point, was to build good, strong, kind, intellectually curious, independent people who can go out and be a nice addition to whatever environment they find themselves in. Yeah, that's so beautifully put. That's it. And kindness. I mean, I think we're successful if we built kind people for the next generation. Yeah. I mean, I will sob later, obviously, but I will remember what you said. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I dot Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So, buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So, how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic, oracle.com slash strategic. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. 
the all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? This was your hardest of your questions. I've been reading a lot about Rachel Carson. Her most famous book was called Silent Spring. It came out in the 60s. And as she was dying of cancer, she made a very persuasive and emotional and beautifully written argument that DDT, this pesticide that humans were spraying everywhere, was going to lead to a silent spring. It thins the, the shells of bird eggs and so really um, makes bird reproduction complicated. You know, it's an insecticide. In World War II, it arrived as like this magic silver bullet that could eradicate especially during war when everybody's all close together, these diseases that, you know, these awful pandemics that were occurring, especially say in Naples in 1944, they shower a million people with DDT and all the lice die and then there's no typhus anymore. So saving tons of lives and also malaria. It's an amazing mosquito eradicating pesticide, but the collateral damage is immense. So anyway, Rachel Carson was living in a time when it definitely wasn't okay to be a lesbian or even just be interested in sexuality in a different way. And she had a relationship with a woman named Dorothy Freeman, and there's about 900 letters that survive between them. And they had this amazing romantic relationship that was always kind of fearful of being found out. Dorothy was married to a man. And so I've just been reading through some of those letters and trying to understand they're very different. And I think what's so interesting about love is we often think, what do we have a comment? You know, like, hey, let's go out. I'm a Scorpio. You're a Scorpio. You like skateboarding? But differences, I think, are what ultimately make relationships interesting, the way you try to embrace what's different about each other. And that's how you learn and evolve together. It's like, oh, Minnie likes to go to bed at 10, and I like to go to bed at 8.30 or whatever. I think those kinds of things really help push you to grow as a person if you can embrace the differences of your beloved, so-called beloved. Were they very different, Dorothy and Rachel Carson? Yes. Rachel kind of had a little ego, which is interesting to learn. And, you know, she became a famous writer about 10 years before Silent Spring. So she had to deal with fame. Uh, Of course, she didn't have another person in her life. So there's always that kind of strange jealousy, too, where Dorothy has this husband, Stan. But they shared so much love for beauty and for the natural world that they could, you know, be out just like in their dresses, in their 1950s dresses, tide pooling together. And they took like such joy in sharing that. So sharing the beauty of the world with each other, I think, was this thing they had in common. But then Dorothy would go back to her so-called heterosexual life and all these norms that are pressed down upon these women so that the time they could spend together is so intense. There's something really beautiful. That's amazing. I love that. I love that that's in a book, but it's not fiction. That's really cool. What quality do you like least about yourself? impatience. I take a long time to write these books. Like how long? My book before Cloud Cuckoo Land was called All the Light We Cannot See. It took me 10 years to write. (laughs) I started it when I was 30 and I finished it when I was 40. It took me forever. You did win the Pulitzer Prize for it, so maybe it was worth it. 
I guess. That was an epically beautiful book. The Shell Collector was my gateway book. And then All the Light We Cannot See, and then Cloud Cuckoo Land, and then your memoir. Thank you so much, man. You're so sweet. But anyway, uh, you know, at least Americans were kind of taught to worship efficiency. Like, don't waste a chapter. Don't like, oh, if you take a research trip to France for this book, every minute better be productive or you're failing. Like, you know, especially leaving my wife back at home with two kids, taking a financial risk to go there. You just put so much pressure on yourself. Like, I can't just go and drink cider and look out at the sea. I've got to be working. To the point where I think, you know, through my 30s, I was teaching myself, if I'm stuck in a line at the grocery store, you should be back at your desk. Like, this is a waste of time. Like, you should at least be reading something. Like, you should be researching while you're waiting three people deep to buy this lettuce. And I'm trying as I get older to accept that sometimes you can't control life. Like you just get stuck in traffic or your flight's delayed. And there are real pleasures in trying to find moments of the day to just breathe. For example, I was just on a flight and it was right on time. Everything was going great, but it was like the third flight. It was a long flight back home from Europe. This has probably happened to you. And the gate people aren't ready to like dock the plane with the jetway. And you know, your bladder's full. And I'm like, I've timed my patience just for this last <laughs> 30 seconds so I could get off the plane. But I'm just telling myself, like, here's an opportunity for you to just breathe, sit in the chair. I'm totally failing at this, by the way, but I'm trying to say, like, now you can exercise patience and say, you're alive. You have so many things to be grateful for. You have a book in your bag. Just pull the book back out. It's going to be okay. But I'm not that great at that. So in patience, I wish I was more patient. What do you think would happen if you were more patient? Maybe you would lose like some kind of engine. I think that's okay. <laughs> like the engine of like that makes you write books or that makes you go say yes to the film project that's probably landing in your email box right now. Sometimes saying yes to those things is so valuable because you go to Fiji or whatever, you'll meet people and you'll be a participant in this great team making this film. But sometimes if you tone down the engine Maybe stillness is something that we need to embrace a little more, as, at least for me as I'm getting older. The pandemic really helped teach me that. I used to think like, I've got to have a list of things I've got to see before I die. Like, you've never been to the Amalfi Coast, Tony. Like, you haven't read all of Edith Wharton, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tony. Take Washington Square to goddamn Amalfi. <laughs> exactly. And then while you're there, make sure you also go for a run and do push-ups. And, you know, I think I've got to say... It's okay. Like there were these moments, especially early in the pandemic, when there's no airplanes in the sky. You know, we have these beautiful blue spring skies and the snow geese were migrating like a mile above our yard. You'd see this little thread, this little like bracelet of white birds. And you could hear them because there was no other sound. You'd hear them honking at each other. And you realize like just here in our backyard, there's as many miracles as I've been chasing when I'm trying to like go all the way to Kenya or something. So I'm trying to learn that right around us, there's all these gifts and that I don't have to always be running the engine as hot as I think I should. In your life, can you tell me about something that has grown out of a personal disaster? So we've been talking about our kids just heading off to school. They're 18 years old. They're twins. Are they identical twins or are they fraternal? They're fraternal. They're quite different looking and inside too. Right. But we got married 22 years ago and dated for a few years before that. And we both wanted to be parents and it wasn't working out. After we got married, we're like, let's see if we can make babies. And it wasn't happening. And in the beginning, we were kind of like in this arms race with some friends who were getting pregnant and were like semi unconsciously bragging about it. And you just were like, oh, like, this is hard for us. We're struggling. 
And it felt very much like a personal disaster, even though I know there are many worse problems in the world. And thanks to science and uh, in vitro, we were able, with quite a bit of expense that wasn't covered by our healthcare plan, able to get pregnant. Sean got pregnant with twins. When I look back now, I am so grateful that we went through those thickets because I I knew I wanted these kids. And every minute that I was with them, I was pumped. I was so grateful that I got to see those kids run around and jump in puddles and play basketball and skin their knees and yell at me. And I just really had to go through that journey to understand like, this is an immense privilege to get to have an offspring that I get to hang out with. I've just been thinking about that lately, how that so-called personal disaster, at least the troubles we were going through, really helped us appreciate what we had. That's really what their childhood was. Mm, that you noticed it happening and now noticing that it's so there in all, I mean, I know that that is, it's sort of what you're famous for in your books is the detail with which you tell these stories. But it is really interesting that that is like how you live your life as well. I'm trying. My favorite art, whatever it is, film or a painting or a symphony or like a quilt, it shows you the world with new eyes. It wakes you up to the miracle of being alive because I think the worst crime you can commit is to sleepwalk through your life Hmm. you know and of course there's days when you're tired and it's fine to you know whatever take in a junky film where you know every single thing that's going to happen but to challenge yourself occasionally to wake up and see the familiar with unfamiliar eyes that's what i try to do in my sentences to try to disrupt little patterns so that you're disrupting cliche at the sentence level and then stories that kind of disrupt expectations and surprise a reader. They bring me so much pleasure. So that's the kind of stuff I'm trying to make anyway. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I dot Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. So now, what question would you most like answered? I was thinking about this and I was like, oh, it's obviously going to be aliens. Like, are there aliens? And then I thought, that's okay. Here's my midlife journey is just like tying it with my previous answer. I'm trying to get more comfortable with not knowing, like not knowing when the dudes are going to use their little joystick and put the jetway onto the plane. Get more comfortable with that. And so I think I would just say it's okay. I'm happy with not knowing what I don't know. Like, you know, the classic exercise if they handed any driver an envelope and said, inside is the date and the cause of your death. You know, would you open it? No. Right. Because knowing would suck. Knowing would suck. Totally suck. Like, again, why are we not better at it? All we do as humans is not know stuff. <laughs> How are we not better at this? Like, I'm, I want to know that. I want to know about why these parts of ourselves don't evolve when we have so much information. Like, you just saying, I just want to get more comfortable with the unknown. Like, it feels so freeing. It feels like, oh, like a breath. Like, God, that's the way to do it. It's not to seek to, you know, it's like God isn't in the God, it's in the faith. If you can get into the notion of faith, then you can really get into the idea of God. I mean, this is how my Christian friends have explained God to me. And I understand that because they're wanting me to just cozy up with the void. And I feel differently about that on any different day. But it's interesting that we haven't developed a better relationship with not knowing. Yes. And for me, that's all tied with the future. Like my anxiety is often about like what is coming, what will come next, what will happen next Tuesday when I have to talk to a French journalist, how badly will I flame out? And if I can just be more present, like the Buddhists, maybe like Christians, you know, Buddhist idea of living now and accepting now means you have to be comfortable with not knowing what's coming and whatever comes, being comfortable with your ability to cope with it. And I'm just saying words. I'm not good at following any of this, but. Well, okay, well, which leads me to what I'm going to have to ask you this. How does one get from the self-awareness and the knowledge that the words create of what it is we need to know and then the not doing of that and the continuing not doing of the thing that we know would make us feel better? How do we bridge that schism, Tony? Come on. <laughs> Quick. Yeah. I remember, I'm a novelist. <laughs> Friends who meditate, uh, for me, it's yoga in the morning. The moments that you can just take in the day to practice being comfortable in the now. 
even if it's 20 minutes, I think can help prepare you, make you Mm -hmm. a little more resilient for the rest of the day when your Uber is late and you're like, when will he get here? I have to be blank. And then also, I think for me, like accepting the invitation of like the night sky of the universe often helps me. Right before we dropped our boys off at college, I took them backpacking. We were really lucky to have smoke-free skies and remembering how tiny you are can sometimes be so helpful because our problems start to seem like we're the center of the universe. And if you remember, like the Earth's four and a half billion years old, like 99.9% of species have gone extinct. You know, humans will be the same eventually. You know, your life is small and huge. And that's kind of like, that's the paradox in fiction writing, really. You know, you're dealing with the details of some person's life. And yet this person's life in the pages of a novel becomes enormous. But it's also tiny because you're connecting with readers across time and space. And so you can remember somehow your smallness by exercising that imagination, that imaginative empathy to say, oh, Minnie Driver has felt the same way as I have felt about saying goodbye to her son before he goes off to camp means I'm not alone. And it means my problems aren't so unique in the history of the world. And I think reading is one way to really help me exercise that and just looking up at the stars and contemplating, you know, our tiny little whirling hunk of carbon that's like whirling around out here. We're just tiny. Even the Milky Way is just a tiny little galaxy in a sea of galaxies. God, it's nuts when you say that the Milky Way is a tiny little galaxy in a sea of galaxies. As my mother was dying, which as the kind of the agonizing everyday part of grief subsides and like you start watching it grow into something else if you've developed a relationship with it which I think it's incredibly important to do and the days where you can approach your loss in this more robust way and remember and think about that person and I think about my mother and she did say a version of we were lying in her bed pretty close to the end and she said I just I can't believe how fast this is all happening and I said, do you mean dying? And she said, I do, I mean dying, but I also mean living. She's like, it, it happened so quickly. And then she, and she did, not in, she wasn't in a self-pitying way. And she said, and you know, the other thing that's crazy, she was like, the lack of significance and the significance of my life is happening in real time and in real awareness. And it is the trippiest feeling and thought to hold that it meant everything. And it meant nothing. And those two things are existing in time and space and here in my physical body, which is soon going to be gone. And it was so interesting because you want, I wanted to have a really evolved spiritual reaction to that, but invariably, because again, one is comforted and also confounded by your humanness. All I could do is just squeeze her hand just so tightly. And in, I suppose, in recognition or in comfort or in whatever it was she needed to get out of that squeeze. But it's wild remembering that. Yeah, that's beautiful. And don't be impatient with yourself if that spiritual moment doesn't last because you are alive. Like eventually you have to go eat and have breakfast and change your shoes. And these revelations, these like epiphanies that we have don't last. That's just part of being human. And we kind of have to keep relearning those lessons of our vast insignificance and our massive insignificance all at once. Exactly. 
So will you tell me what person, place or experience most altered your life? Yeah, I think my wife, Shauna, gets a shout out here. She's taught me patience. Shauna grew up in a family, um, she had three sisters and her oldest has an intellectual disability. And as a consequence, her house was filled with patience in a way mine wasn't because Kelly just takes much longer to do everything. And also they just kept conflict to a minimum. I had three brothers, so it was kind of this other yin-yang household and there's just always movement and mud and creatures and action in our house. And I think Shauna has taught me so much about patience and she'll just drop I me. Mean, she teaches me about love every minute. She'll just drop whatever she's doing to talk to all of her friends, our kids, me about our problems, you know, versus me. I'm like, I'm typing a very important email. You know, can I hear about your heartbreak later? You know, kindness, patience. When we first got married, like if we're in the grocery store and I'd be like, oh, I decided we don't want this pancake mix or something. And I'm just going to put it back here in the soft drinks aisle. She'd be like, no, <laughs> we're going to walk all the way back to aisle three and put it back where you found it. Like, oh my gosh. Are we? Okay. <laughs> oh, we are. Oh, wow. We're doing this. Oh, right. Okay. Oh. So the education of being a better person all the time. That's so great that you love that though. That's clearly obviously why she loves you because you don't mind things that are kind of making you a more thoughtful and considerate human. Yeah. Love is, especially, you know, over decades, it helps you grow as a person. You know, if you can keep challenging each other and help each other evolve and appreciate that change is like the only music in the world that, you know, change is going to keep coming. And how do you help each other through that? You know, I remember the first days of the pandemic when we thought like we're going to be dragging each other's corpses to the curb or who knows. I remember both of us saying like, we're are so grateful we have had this time together and those little resets are so important i think yeah how is she doing with your sons being off at college yeah thanks for asking since we're only eight days in we just neither of us really know 70 percent of the traffic in our house came from our boys and their pals and so it's super quiet thankfully my career is kind of busy so that kind of helps me maybe ignore Feelings of like the dumb men aren't good at this way. And she's probably a little farther along in processing this as part of the journey. But, you know, phones are interesting. You know, when I went to college, I called my parents every other Sunday and that was it. And they're texting her a lot. And so I think she's getting connected to them because of technology in a way that's mostly healthy. I don't think they're ignoring their experience to touch base with home. But it does make you feel connected to them like, oh, they figured out what dining hall to eat at or they figured out how to do their laundry or they figured out how to get a package. You know, that stuff is kind of nice. Yeah, no, I love the mundane. I check the weather where he is right now. He's on this camping trip. I'm obsessively refreshing the Met office here in England, which is notoriously useless at predicting weather, but I'm looking at it in real time, not ahead. So I feel like I'm staying very present with the weather where he is. So that's good, isn't it? It is. I'm in the now and he's in the rain. It is just raining and it's quite cold. And are you comfortable with that? Can you sit with that and be like, he's cold? Yeah, because I know how many socks he's got because I packed them. And I realized really what you need is you need 15 pairs of socks because really what you want is your feet to feel dry. Even if your boots are wet, putting on dry socks makes you feel better. I know that from having done a lot of trekking. And if you've gotten wet, you have to have warm clothes to change into. So I'm not worried. <laughs> Boys are so funny that I guarantee he doesn't even know everything that's in his back. I swear to you, he will have worn the same two pairs of socks. Exactly. <laughs> and the one sweater, you know, I pack five. Yeah. I like being connected by mundane things. That makes me feel safe in the world. 
rather than being connected by the loftier stuff. I just want him to text me and go, can you get some salt and vinegar crisps for when I get back? And I'll be like, yeah, totally. And like, that's it. <laughs> and that's what love is though. That's love. That's what love is. It's like, it doesn't need to be. It's Shakespearean sonnet, you know? it's Yeah, you have those moments or they volunteer them. That's what's great. Those moments, the poetry of your children comes in the rarest, most amazing moments. You know, not when you necessarily need it or are asking for it, but when they deliver it. And there's something, I mean, I tend to write down a lot of the stuff that he says, but I sometimes, I do write down the crisps conversations too, because they are incredibly comforting. Like verbatim, I'll do it. And it, they make me chuckle. That's great. And they'll, you'll love them in 20 years. I know. I've been doing it since he was about three. I've been writing down the weird shit that he says. And it's really good going back and reading and knowing that he's wound up where he is currently and will continue. Yeah. Making that unscheduled time for that. You know, corporations are always trying to sell us on like, come to this resort and have meaningful family time. But, you know, <laughs> you can just do that by being present at dinner, you know, just burn some pork chops. By the way, I went to hear Ram Dass speak when I was quite young. He came to London and I went and sat on the floor and listened to this, you know, he was amazing, an amazing being and person. And his whole thing was, you know, not only not only can you, but you will, and you should think about it. If you're going to think about anything, having your big spiritual experiences in the butcher's shop, in picking your tomatoes, waiting in line at the dentist, in the waiting room, as you will, like sitting under the banyan tree. It goes back to what you were saying about detail. Like there is such life in detail and that is mundane and that is also poetic. That's right. The mundane and the sublime are linked. They're like braided around each other all the time. Boy, they really are. I love salt and vinegar crisps. They are the food of the gods. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and chatting and about all these ideas. It's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, Minnie. I've really enjoyed diving into the podcast. And I think it's so cool that you're exercising your curiosity and you get to bring all these different people together. It's so wonderful. Thank you, Tony. And please say hello to your wife and your boys. Okay, same. Say hi to Henry. Will do. Well, when he gets back with his clean socks. <laughs> yeah, with all his, his clean socks. socks. <laughs> Anthony's newest book, Cloud Cuckoo Land, is out now in hardcover and paperback. And be sure to read his other incredible works, including All the Light We Cannot See, About Grace, and this wonderful collection of short stories called The Shell Collector. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoie. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Minnie Driver. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me, Minnie Driver. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dela Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg, and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver.
Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.